Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and it's about this time of year that we start hearing a sound most of us haven't heard in months. That's right, the unforgettable sound of the school bell. School's back in session, folks, and as students across the D.C. region hit the books, we're tipping our hats to them with a show all about learning. Over the next hour, we'll find out how D.C. public schools are giving physical education a makeover to make sure all kids are actually breaking a sweat. We'll explore the increasingly intense competition in local private school admissions. And we'll talk with people engaged in other kinds of learning, like learning how to till the land and how to be mobile culinary entrepreneurs. But to get things started today... Okay, so everybody's seen Chapter 2 and has read it or will have read it by the quiz, let's say, on Friday? Yeah. <laughs> let's head to the classroom. Okay. So we were talking about ancient Mesopotamia and these 30 or so city-states that sprang up all around the same time, give and take. In this case, at D.C.'s 145-year-old Howard University, one of the most well-known historically black colleges and universities in the United States. And in this particular classroom, Dr. Arti Mehta is teaching a course called Cultures of the Ancient Mediterranean. What is it that makes a city-state? I think it comes down to, like, the independence and also maybe perhaps its location and, like, the villages around it and things like that. As they say, location, 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 right? <laughs> Cultures of the Ancient Mediterranean is a brand new offering in Howard's Department of Classics. Or, as the department may soon be known, says Associate Professor Dr. Norman Sandridge. Ancient Mediterranean Studies. And here's why. Not long after Dr. Sidney Rabot became Howard's president in 2008, he instituted what he called an academic renewal program. He wanted to breathe new life into the university, which had experienced its share of turmoil prior to his election. He also wanted to enable Howard to go toe-to-toe with the nation's other HBCUs. To do this, he created a commission of more than four dozen faculty members, including Norman Sandridge, to examine Howard's 180-some academic programs. And then sort of figure out which were going to be viable, which were going to be important for the, the future of the university. Then last summer, the commission recommended to the administration that certain Howard programs be merged, transformed, or all-out eliminated. The commission zeroed in on the classics department as one in need of some major transformation. So the classics people were like, whoa, we got to do something, and we got to do something fast. And what they did was expand their offerings beyond the usual ancient Greece and Rome stuff. And study the ancient Mediterranean world in its totality with all of its fluidity and continuity and also think very seriously about its relevance for today. And actually, that relevance for today, Norman Sandridge mentions, that's another key part of academic renewal, says Dr. Wayne Frederick, a Howard alum who now serves as provost. As the fields change, as technology advances, we have to get to a point where we're doing as many relevant things as is possible. And even the things that we're offering that are still relevant, we have to make sure that we're offering them in a way that's still relevant as well. A prime example, Frederick says, is the proposed reorganization of the School of Communications. For instance, an undergraduate program now puts several of the majors into two groups, uh, one being media journalism and film, and the other being strategic legal and management communications. And remind me what it was like before in the undergraduate program? Right, so prior to that, there were departments of journalism, radio, TV and film, and communication and culture as well as mass communications, media studies, and communication and culture. And so they brought those in 
and develop these two um, undergraduate programs. Frederick says when people ask him about academic renewal, they often pose the same question, namely... Would there potentially be some financial gain? And the answer, he says, is maybe... There possibly will be, but it's not one that was a calculated decision in the process. I think what's more important is that the allocation of resources is more attuned to what we feel the contemporary needs are of our students and faculty. And again, at Howard, some of that allocation has led to program elimination, including many degrees in the School of Education, as well as the master's programs in philosophy and art history. The criteria for the cuts, Frederick says, were things like... Are we still getting a lot of applicants in? And... Are we putting out a lot of graduates that are doing great things in in the different fields, etc.? But despite the program cuts, Frederick says, there haven't been any faculty cuts, just fewer adjunct hires. Now, I should mention that at this point, academic renewal is in different stages all over campus. The classics department, for instance, won't fully morph into ancient Mediterranean studies until a final vote by Howard's board of trustees. But Rudolf Hock... I'm uh, associate professor and chair of the Department of Classics, soon to be ancient Mediterranean studies. Well, obviously, he's full of hope that the vote will pass. We have eight full-time faculty, two of whom are year-to-year appointments, and we just found out that they have been rehired for another year. So I think it's fair to say that if the administration had wanted to send us a bad signal, they would not have reappointed our two year-to-year appointees, nor would they have given him tenure. Hawk is talking about Norman Sandridge, who's feeling pretty good after being awarded tenure in August. But as for how Sandridge feels about the future of his department? Are you breathing a sigh of relief right now? Are you biting your nails? How, do you, how are you feeling? I always bite my nails, uh, <laughs> just compulsively. He says he's pretty positive. He's also thankful for academic renewal, he says, because it isn't just breathing new life into Howard's academic programs, but into its faculty. Faculty who can be, he says, sometimes a bit averse to change. For example, you know, I I was trained primarily in ancient Greek, you know, reading a lot of different ancient Greeks and trying to figure out how they relate to one another. But uh, now, as part of this academic renewal, I'm taking a much more serious look at the way that Greeks interacted with ancient Persians or modern uh, Iran. And so that's both challenging but exciting for me as a scholar to branch out. And Sandridge hopes that excitement is contagious and students will flock with newly restored vigor to the Department of Classics or, fingers crossed, the Department of Ancient Mediterranean Studies. For more information on academic renewal at Howard University and for a link to a video about the commission's academic review process, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We turn now from college education to independent education, a.k.a. private schools. The Washington area has dozens and dozens of private schools. But in a highly educated region such as ours, supply doesn't always equal demand. In fact, it falls a bit behind. So the process of applying to these schools can be a stressful experience, both for families and for the admissions officers who decide who gets in. Jonathan Wilson talked with a few of these gatekeepers at these institutions about how the process looks from their point of view. 
A lot has changed at the Potomac School in McLean, Virginia, since I graduated in 1998. New buildings, new sports fields, and a bigger student body. Yes, I'm an alum, and yes, that's probably one of the reasons Charlotte Nelson, the school's director of admissions, agreed to give me just a little insight into exactly what it's like to decide which children are Potomac material. We have a mission, and our mission is to be gender balanced. Our mission is to be geographically diverse as a school, to be ethnically and racially diverse, and to be socioeconomically diverse. So those kind of guidelines really help you, direct you towards the students you're going to assemble as one class. Nelson is one of the things that hasn't changed since my time at the school. She's been in her position for 23 years, and she says though a clear mission statement helps keep her and her team on task, one part of her job never gets easier. Probably the hardest part of the job is disappointing people. There are many more people who are interested in a lot of our independent schools than we have room for them from year to year. So it's hard to disappoint people. Annie Farquhar is Nelson's counterpart at Murray, a K-12 independent school with an idyllic campus in northwest Washington, not far from the National Cathedral. Farquhar has been at Murray for 24 years, and she and Nelson know each other well. Both say the supportive atmosphere among admissions departments at the area's competing schools is one of their favorite aspects of working in private education here. There's certainly a cone of silence during the time we're making our decisions, but we support one another and talk with one another throughout the year and help one another. But what exactly goes on when all the admissions departments at St. Albans, Sidwell, Murray, and Potomac, and the other elite private schools in the area retreat to their respective corners in January and February and start making actual decisions? It turns out that the cone of silence extends pretty far. Many schools simply refuse to discuss the inner workings of their admissions process with me. Murray and Potomac, at least, use strikingly similar systems. Admissions committees made up of faculty members and different committees for specific age groups. Nelson says anxious parents should remember that these committees aren't simply looking for nits to pick with a child's personality or academic record. I mean, everybody's kind of rooting for the kids. They're really not looking for why they don't want a child. It's an admission committee. It's not a deny committee. It's a committee looking to take people. Farquhar says her job is to present an accurate picture of each child to the faculty members who will make the final decisions. We'll advocate for every kid and tell them what they think, what we think they'll bring to the table, um, but again, defer and work with the faculty. So it's at the end of it all, you feel really great about the class you formed and the kids that we are able to accept. But the road to those final decisions isn't always without some bumps. Nelson says it's not unusual for committee members to have strong and opposing positions on a particular student. Are there debates between admission committee members about, you know, I love this student, I love this student? Does that happen? It does. It does. They can get, people can get pretty emotional. Uh, and there are, um, I love it because there's a variety to the people in the room. And some people are, are have an eye towards the academic promise and potential of a student. Others have um, an eye towards their citizenship and uh, the kind of heart and uh, addition they're going to make as a person in the grade. Decision letters are sent out at the start of March, and the top schools in the area synchronize the timing of these letters to make it easier for parents applying to several schools. But for Nelson and Farquhar, relationships with families that are not accepted often continue beyond the weekend when the letters are sent out. 
both consider it part of their jobs to help families find the right school for their children, even if it isn't Potomac or Moray. Nelson says that part of the process can be rewarding as well. It feels like you're not just stopping shy of completing a relationship and a conversation. You don't want to cultivate people, show off your school, and then just kind of have this verdict that comes down and not continue the conversation. It's listening to what they think their child needs and what school fits them best and then acting as a resource for them to help them find that particular school if it isn't Murray. So the job of an admissions director at a selective private school is personal, painful, rewarding, and challenging. And both of these women would probably be doing something else if it wasn't all of those things. Of course, it's probably even harder to be the parent of a child dearly wishing to make the right impression on a prospective school. But Nelson has a mantra she tries to impart to each and every anxious parent that walks through her door. Children are going to really be more resilient than parents think, and children are going to really flourish in a lot of settings, and it isn't the end of the world that they won't be here for a particular grade in a particular year. And that's one of the things I like to help parents feel better about. So parents of young children stop worrying, as if it were that easy. I'm Jonathan Wilson. If you're the parent of a private school student, how was your experience with the admissions process? Send us an email. Our address is metro at wamu.org. Time for a quick break, but when we get back, goodbye dodgeball, hello Pilates. If you're not able to compete on the level of everyone else, then you're not getting the, the same benefits from the class. Physical education in D.C. gets a brand new workout. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, we are all about learning. We just spent some time in our local private schools. We're going to switch gears now and talk about the D.C. public schools. DCPS began this new school year with more than 450 new teachers, dozens of new principals, and nearly 90,000 new textbooks. And as we look at the year ahead, we can no doubt expect a lot of talk about students' scores in reading and math. But that's not what we're going to talk about right now. No, right now, our focus is physical education. And joining me in the studio to jabber about gym is WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza. Kavitha, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. So we've watched for years as school systems around the country have cut physical education from students' schedules. But DCPS is trying to improve the way it teaches phys ed. How so? The most basic change has to do with the types of games children play, Rebecca. Here's Heather Holliday, who's in charge of physical education for DCPS. Physical education of the past would involve games like dodgeball, elimination games, and if you're not able to compete on the level of everyone else, then you're not getting the, the same benefits from the class. 
those games you know, sort of exclude the kids that were that really the class is for, and that's those kids that are overweight or obese. So instead of dodgeball, for example, students are asked to compete against themselves. Each child has an individual plan and goals. So, for example, in running. If they can do five laps, the next time they try and do six laps. They're trying to beat their previous scores. Students also have individual heart monitors or pedometers so they can track how they're doing. Wow. So students are just doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. Does that mean you won't find kids playing, say, volleyball or basketball, team sports, for example? You'll still find those sports, but teachers may modify the game. So, for example, on a volleyball court, teachers may use half the number of players so students are forced to move around a lot more. And PE teachers offer several types of sports, including golf, archery and tennis. And high schools also have giant Wii screens that students can use to learn, say, yoga and Pilates. We yoga and Pilates. We mm-hmm. have come a long way from the days I was in school. Um, but I have to ask, is anyone voicing concerns that all this time spent on phys ed is time that could otherwise be spent on things like reading or math? Well, I did a series on obesity last year. I remember it well. And researchers said that children who are more active or who actually participate in physical education can concentrate better in class. They sit still. They don't go as much to the nurse's office. I checked back in recently with Yolandra Hancock. She's a doctor I interviewed for that series. She works with children who are overweight or obese. She says weight problems actually affect how these children do in school. Some researchers believe that there may be something physiologically that's affecting a child's ability to learn. Others believe because of self-esteem issues and bullying, it makes them less eager to attend school and participate in school activities. While we're talking about physical activity and phys ed, what about the nutrition side of things? I mean, nutrition and exercise do, after all, go hand in hand. And I know DCPS has revamped the entire school lunch menu. Mm -hmm. But is nutrition something that's being taught in health class in the public schools? Yes. In health class, students now have to learn how to create a meal plan for themselves and their families. As Heather Holiday points out, they learn how to advocate in their families for healthier choices, such as low-fat milk. We teach skills like reading a food label. We teach refusal skills. Starting in middle school, all of our students every single year um, are required to create a personal fitness plan. They're also required to, to create meal plans for themselves or the, and or their family. Some schools also have family activity night, where they teach families how to cook a nutritious meal or they exercise together. At the end of the day, though, Rebecca, the point is, are these students becoming healthier? And in many cases, are these students losing weight? Excellent question. Kavitha Cardoza, thanks so much for bringing us up to speed on what's happening in the D.C. public schools. You're welcome. And we want to know, do you think phys ed is working in your local schools? If not, how would you revamp things? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is WAMU Metro. of physical activity, here's a job that's chock full of it, farming. But if you've never farmed before, the learning curve for growing crops or caring for livestock, well, it can be pretty steep. 
That's why a growing number of farms are taking on newcomers willing to work for little to no pay for a chance to apprentice on the land. Sabri Benashore headed to St. Mary's County in southern Maryland to take us inside a process known as woofing. It's apple season on Christina Allen's organic homestead farm, and as she trudges through her orchard, she grabs a piece of fruit from a tree and tests it for ripeness. Mm-hmm. It's almost ready. She's looking at the seeds. If the seeds are black, then it's ready. If they're not quite black, then it's not quite ready. 90%. We could probably make the cider. One of Allen's inquisitive and rare beige-colored Jersey buff turkeys stares longingly at the core. That's, that's Wilma. Hi, Wilma. What do you think this one, Wilma? Is it good? Yeah, she likes it. <laughs> they love the sound of that. Alan is showing her farm hands how to Take harvest apples. apples Make sure you get it completely so that it's stripped clean of apples. The farm hands, Bob Giesel and Aaron Salisbury, have been up since 6 a.m. They've weeded, they've harvested. I'm raking uh, all of this off because this is the mulch that keeps the weeds and the moisture in. They've processed applesauce and made vinegar. They spent some days with the chickens. Great dried manure with crud on it from the chicken coop. Now, these aren't farmhands from, like, a John Steinbeck novel. They're doing this for fun. To tap out of the rat race for both of us and having a little slower lifestyle and better for the environment. There's a lot of things happening to the earth right now. Wanting to go back to basics. Salisbury and Giesel stay for free in a small yellow cottage on this homestead. And in return, they help Christina Allen and her husband Frank on the farm and learn a thing or two about organic farming and living along the way. And we're looking at homesteading too as a couple. So this is good practice for us. This thing that they're doing, this sort of organic farming tourism slash apprenticeship is a real thing. It's called Woofing, Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms, Ing. It started in the 70s, and there's a whole U.S. organization devoted to matching volunteers with the 17,000 farms looking for participants. (laughs) Under the apple trees, a few five-gallon buckets are full of apples now, and so are a few turkeys. And now it's on to the cider press. Because it's a drought this year, they've been a little drier. I'd say if we get three quarts, that'll be There is an incredible amount to learn on this farm. The turkeys and the sheep eat the bad apples and the grass in the orchard. Their manure fertilizes the trees. Their bones go into a compost heap that makes larvae to supplement the chicken feed. It's a lot for people to get. They think they can get it in a day or two or even a week or a few weeks. And it really is a year for a full cycle. In the house, it's time for lunch. Yeah, you have a napkin? A spread of orange watermelon, pickled zucchini, and turkey casserole is on the table. Okay, this is Dale and... Um, the turkey. Yes. <laughs> and uh, our potatoes, we've got lots of potatoes this year. Our onions, our garlic, everything in here is ours. Christina and Frank, the woofers, and some neighbors sit around the dining room over their delicious and homegrown lunch. Who who says you aren't what you eat? You are. Of course you are. Frank and Christina Allen get all kinds of people who come through here to learn about what they do. It's it's an incredible spectrum. We had one that was, had just graduated from high school. He did a deferred uh, enrollment for college. Then you have some people that are, you know, they're having trouble finding jobs. They're trying to find themselves. You have some people that are doing this as vacation. A lot of people do it because they're starting their own organic farms. And other people do it just as a cultural experience. And then we had a guy from South Korea who was a city kid, and he was way over his head. Um, He was terrified of electric fences. He was terrified of chickens. 
he was terrified of everything, you know. <laughs> but he, he was a good sport, and he was had a nice personality. For Bob Giesel and Aaron Salisbury, now out picking aronia berries, it's about centering themselves. I'm semi-retired. I left the corporate world. I used to be electrical engineer at uh, Northrop Grumman, so I got tired of it. And I'm just, anything I can learn about self-sufficiency, stop being uh, dependent on other products and people for you to survive. Salisbury's also looking for something, something very basic, something she says she'll find in being close to the earth. I'm a trauma specialist, so I work with survivors of severe trauma. And it's so fascinating because I found that when I explore their life to try to find something that'll help calm their trauma system, the fast heart rate, the flashbacks, I try to find something in their childhood that was really powerful. And it is always something related to nature, and it is always so grounding to them. And for Christina and Frank Allen, it's about sharing their way of life. It's about passing on what they know before they die. We're just trying to live a good, decent life, I guess, and trying to, um, you know, uh, maybe by example, some people might be interested in what we're doing, and if they're interested, fine, and we're willing to help them. But no, we're not trying to change the, the world, I think. Or we're just trying to change our part of it, our little oasis here. <laughs> Soon it'll be time to water the animals, bring in the flocks, close up the greenhouses, and start all over again tomorrow morning. I'm Sabri Beneshore. For more information on organic farming and woofing, I just love saying that word, woofing, and even a recipe for cantaloupe ice cream, check out our website, metroconnection.org. We go from the rural to the urban now as we bring you our weekly transportation segment from A to B. Last week, reporter Martin DeCaro visited neighborhoods in northwest D.C.'s Ward 1 to explore the relationship between new development and access to public transportation. Today, we'll visit the Deanwood area of Ward 7, which, as Martin tells us, is finally seeing some of the growth taking place in other parts of the city. Take the Orange Line east of the Anacostia. And you'll arrive in what looks and feels like a different city in one significant respect. While other parts of D.C. have exploded with new condos and retail space, the area around the Minnesota Avenue metro station is only starting to transform. We are getting young African American as well as uh, other racial people moving into the area. One reason is because right now it is still relatively affordable, more affordable than some of the other parts of the city that received development and growth a lot sooner. 62-year-old Dennis Chestnut runs the grassroots group Groundwork Anacostia. Been in this neighborhood since, uh, since I was born. He's trying to guide the ward smoothly into the next chapter of its history. Very rapid growth has its 
drawbacks. Three metro stations serve this part of the city, four if you count the Capitol Heights station just over the Prince George's County border. So it's fertile ground for new development. You know, there's opportunity here for metro and transit-oriented retail that could could support, uh, you know, this community in a lot of ways. The city built a Department of Employment Services building next to the metro station last year. In Ward 7, there are at least seven major projects in the works receiving city subsidies. At the intersection of Benning Road and Minnesota Avenue, developers just broke ground on a $67 million mixed-use real estate project that'll include mostly affordable rental housing among its 370 units, a key to protecting existing residents from rising property values. The people who are most vulnerable are renters because the rents can keep going up and up. Now, D.C. does have a moderate rent control law for older buildings, uh, but there's ways that building owners can get around that. Cheryl Court is the policy director at the Coalition for Smarter Growth. She accompanied me and Dennis as we made it to the busy intersection that'll also see more than 20,000 square feet of new retail space. The city had originally acquired this whole area to put in a couple of government buildings, but then decided that it it would um, sell this parcel here at the corner of Minnesota and Benning which is kind of the heart of the the commercial core of the community. This part of the city may also get streetcars. A study by the Dukakis Center for Urban and Regional Policy at Northeastern University found that neighborhoods that get new rail transit systems like streetcars see housing become more expensive. In some places, the unintended consequence is that renters and low-income households get priced out. In this neighborhood, the District Department of Transportation is proposing an extension of the H Street Benning Road streetcar line east of the Anacostia River. Octavia Holt is a 21-year-old professional and has lived in this ward for five years. I feel the change. I feel that it's really dramatic because one day a building is there, next day it's a construction site for something new. So I, I just don't feel as though is right to change so rapidly. She says when she first heard about the streetcar project, she thought... Who would put a trolley in this neighborhood? Like, I don't feel as though it's, it has a lot of crime, but a lot of people wouldn't want to ride a trolley. The people that I know, and I feel as though it's not for us. It's not meant for us, the people that's in the neighborhood, and it's meant for the newcomers. Dennis Chestnut believes Ward 7 can indeed handle the changes that arrive with new residents and rail lines, as well as the needs of the residents already here. He says the ward's slow development has turned out to be helpful. It wound up being a blessing in disguise for this particular area because of how rapidly it happened in some of the areas. And, and on the east side of the city in Ward 8 was one example of how rapidly it took place there. It has allowed the residents here in this area of Ward 7 to witness that and to prepare to some extent. You can get a bird's-eye view of the traffic roaring by on Route 295 by standing on an old pedestrian bridge connecting Deanwood with Kenilworth, a neighborhood that Chestnut says has been isolated from its neighbors ever since the highway was built through here. This bridge is the only connection for this community to Minnesota Avenue. And the metro. Well, and the metro. Kenilworth is also starting to grow, but this pedestrian bridge is not considered adequate to meet its needs. Again, here's Cheryl Court. This pedestrian bridge was built a while ago, and it's time for it to be rebuilt, but basically it doesn't feel like a very safe place. There are plans for a new pedestrian walkway to connect the neighborhood to the Minnesota Avenue metro station and the large government office building next to it. This um, 
very close to breaking ground. It'll deter crime, basically. That's what we really need for this connection. The people of Ward 7 face the challenge of balancing the good that'll come with higher property values and more shopping choices with the negative consequences of gentrification, namely that long-time, lower-income residents will be pushed out. Peter Tatian is a senior researcher at the Urban Institute. He says public perceptions may be key to the pace of change here. There are definitely changes coming, and people who come out here to look will see the changes. But the problem is getting the people to come out here in the first place. There's still this perception that's out there that this is not a good place to be. It's not a desirable place. But that's starting to change slowly. Change slowly. Those words are usually not synonymous with D.C. anymore. I'm Martin DeCaro. After the break, learning how to succeed as the owner of a one-of-a-kind business in D.C. My purpose is to make a place where people feel nurtured. It's coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And now that school's back in session, we're bringing you an entire hour about learning. We visited Howard University, where academic renewal is changing things up campus-wide. We've met tourist farmers who put in long hours learning to work the land. And in just a bit, we'll head to D.C.'s only full-service music store for some lessons on music and life. To kick off this part of the show, though, we're going to learn the ropes of a very particular business as we take a little road trip. Hello. How are you? Thanks for coming. Oh, well, thanks for thanks for taking me along with you on this adventure. My fellow adventurer here is Northeast D.C. resident Corey Bryant. Uh, do you need more room for your stuff? Oh, I'm good, I'm good. Okay. And actually, today's adventure was kind of um, unexpected. So where exactly is this place? All the way in Manassas. Here's the story. Corey Bryant is about to launch a new business, a breakfast, lunch, and late-night food truck with a vintage retro 1940s theme called Pin Up Panini. See, Corey has spent years working in the food industry. I used to work down here. Did you really? Yep, I, uh, I was the catering manager so for a lot of these potbelly sandwich companies through here. She's also put in time for Disney and Hard Rock Cafe. These days, she manages and bartends at Open City in Woodley Park. But about a year and a half ago, she thought, why not take all this expertise and start a food truck? Then, last week, when Corey was finally driving her tricked-out 1988 Chevy box truck home from East Coast Custom Coaches in Manassas... I'm listening to, like, victorious music, and I'm so excited, and all of a sudden I realize I have flip-flops on, and my foot is very hot. And I literally lick the little... uh, the gauges right. so I can see I clear the dust out and uh, it's on H it's overheating so I blew a water pump and there's a limited amount of places that you can take it because they have to have bays big enough in order to take a truck that size so I ended up taking to a place called Donald Rice Tire and this morning Corey and I arrive at Donald Rice Tire but her truck, whose walls feature a 1940s pinup girl and whose name, Corey tells me, is Betty. Betty Grable, Betty Page. Isn't ready to come home. Hey, what's going on? How are you? Do you have any information? I don't have it yet, but the parts are ordered. They're coming in today, so okay, I'll cool. get it. I'll 
We're just going to go look at the truck then, okay? Thank you. Now, again, this is not how this interview was supposed to go. With Pinup Panini's original launch date of October 1st, Corey and I had planned on driving Betty around, noshing on dulce de leche and bacon paninis. But as a newbie to the food truck biz, Corey Bryant is quickly learning that things don't always go as planned. So after we climb into Betty's compact stainless steel kitchen... Climb on in here. Yep, so this is where the magic happens. Wow. Which is decked out with a cooler, refrigerator, sinks, a flat top. And then the granddaddy of all panini makers. The panini supremo. Very special. Corey talks about the surprising things she's learned so far. Like, say, the price of generators. I just sort of thought, oh, you get this big RV generator and that's how your truck works. But it's a dollar a watt. So if you have you know, 10,000 watts worth of equipment that needs to be run, you have to buy a $10,000 generator. So, you know, you go in and you have all these wild dreams, and then you sort of, like, scale back a bit. What generator did you end up going with? I have an 8,000-watt generator. So if I have my two panini makers on and my refrigerator that always has to run, when I brew coffee, i got to turn down the panini makers. (laughs) So it's a little bit like, you know, your studio apartment and... Flushings, You know, you just kind of, you got to do what you can with what you have. So you're going to be breakfast, lunch, and then like late night. There's not a whole lot of that going on in Washington. I know. You know, um, I've I've managed restaurants for years, but I've also been a bartender for years. So I love being out in the mix. But there's also regulations about that. I think most of our regulations are pretty fair and they're there to keep people safe. But I would like to go on record saying that I'm not really sure why we're not allowed to be out on Friday and Saturday nights later than 1.30. Our bars don't close till 3 o'clock and uh, people get hungry. Something that I found surprising, I was speaking with you a couple of weeks back because we were planning this interview. And you mentioned you, you, you share commercial kitchen space. Yeah, yeah. Bayou Brothers and Stella's Popcorns in there and Pleasant Pops. I have a freezer and I have a refrigerator and I have prep space, but it's divided like a commissary. You, like, everyone has their own area, but we all share, like, soaps and things to keep clean. And then we also share time. One of the things that I, I got a little bit of a break in the price because I was able to prep at night because everyone else wants morning prep hours. Well, I'm going to be serving breakfast in the morning. So I'm going to prep from two to six and they're all going to be gone. And so that's why it works, but it's all shared space. And every single food truck works out of a commercial kitchen. It's part of the DC regulations. All right. So at this point in your education, in the food truck world, what advice would you give someone else who's maybe tossing around the idea of starting a food truck of his or her own? Uh, Menu development. If you walk into any restaurant, whether it's a food truck or a fast food, it's all about your menu. And I had my menu pretty set because you can waste a lot of money not knowing what you want on your truck. If you just put like a flat top and, oh, I need a refrigerator and maybe I need a fryer, it adds up really, really quickly. And then... I don't know, find something you're passionate about. I love breakfast. I'm going to be happy making that. And I'm going to feel good about giving that to D.C. So I'm hoping they'll, they'll show me some love back, you know. 
Corey Bryant is hoping to get Betty up and rolling next month. In the meantime, for more on Pinup Panini and to read about what it takes to start a food truck in Washington, D.C., visit our website, metroconnection.org. And if you're a food truck fan, here's an event that may be up your alley. The Trucktoberfest Curbside Cookoff is being held September 22nd from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the brand new Union Market. We have more details over at metroconnection.org. So, as Corey Bryant can attest, learning to trust your instincts and dive into the world of entrepreneurship, it can be tricky. But when a neighborhood music store was on the verge of closing its doors, D.C. resident Myrna Sislin decided to go with her gut. And her efforts to save the store changed her life in ways she never expected. Heather Taylor brings us the story. Can one phone call really change your life? If you're Myrna Sislin, owner of Middle Sea Music, D.C.'s only full-service music store, the answer might just be yes. You guys are gonna, do you want to rent one? Do you have one? Let me do it next week. Ten years ago, Sislin had already spent decades enjoying two successful careers simultaneously as both a college professor at George Washington University, heading the classical guitar department, and as a local musician at George Washington. I had a concert series. I had many, many students. It was a wonderful time. And as a working musician... I had been with the Washington guitar quintet with Charlie Bird. The legendary classical guitarist. And then Sislin learned that Middle Sea Music Store, tucked in an office building in Tenleytown, would be closing. Suddenly, she felt compelled to save it. Something came over me and said, you've got to do something to keep this store open. I didn't know exactly what. And drawing on the same energy and determination and skill that helped her to become a professional tap dancer and champion windsurfer, Sislin began contacting people. Did anyone want to buy the store? At first... She got no takers. But that's where the phone call came in. The caller had a unique proposal. The previous owner called me and said, this guy has walked in here. The two of you would be my dream team. Why don't you come and meet him? We met on Saturday and signed the papers that Friday. Unfortunately, the partnership didn't last long. But when it ended, Sislin decided to go solo and retire from her job at GW to focus on running Middle C. I was ready for something new, something different. And that's why when this presented itself, I, I went through the door. And it worked. The store has doubled in size. And this year, Middle C Music celebrates 10 years of operation under Sislin's ownership. In March, the D.C. City Council passed a resolution recognizing the store as a community resource. And what does it mean to be a full-service music store? You have retail. You have print music. Bach, Bon Jovi, Brahms, Coltrane, Green Day, Lady Gaga, Stan Getz. You have lessons. We have approximately 400 a week. acoustic, electric, and bass guitar to piano, strings, brass instruments, baritone, ukulele, and voice. 
and you rent band instruments, uh, we also sell all the instruments. Running Middle C is clearly a busy job. Still, after decades as an artist, does Sislin miss the creativity of a musician's life? I have found that it can be very creative. It has enabled me to pursue music in a different way. I have hopefully created a different kind of music store, wanting to study music. It comes from a place that's deep inside. My whole purpose is to make a place where people feel safe, where they feel nurtured. And sometimes that includes discovering music you didn't know you'd love. I wasn't even thinking about playing classical guitar. That's Brendan Levy, one of Sislin's former students. She encouraged him to try classical guitar and... I immediately loved it, but not only did I learn classical guitar, I also learned flamenco guitar, learned some Brazilian styles of guitar. Over the years, Middle C music has become a family affair in the Levy household. I had two kids taking lessons. Now I've got both kids out of the house, and it's my turn. That's Brendan's mother, Kylie. I decided to take voice lessons the last couple of years. On my birthday, I decided to start piano lessons. My comfort zone is middle C. (laughs) And Sislin, in turn, credits the community for the store's success. If the neighborhood did not want us to be here, we would be gone in a heartbeat. And that is my greatest accomplishment, to make it a place that the neighbors want. And that's really, really important. In remembering the path to her newest career, in Sislin's mind's eye... The train stopped, the doors opened, and I got on the train. And I figured, I'll just ride it and see where it goes. Spoken like someone who's learned to trust her instincts. I'm Heather Taylor. Which of your neighborhood establishments would you miss most if it was at risk of closing its doors? And would you take action to save it? Let us know. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or tweet us. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Morningside, Maryland, and Eastland Gardens in Northeast D.C. My name is Karen Rooker. I'm 52 years old, and I've lived in Morningside since 1987. And I've been mayor since 2007. We're right at the main gate of Andrews Air Force Base. Uh, for years, all the foreign dignitaries, presidents, would go down the main street to get to the airport or to get back into D.C. Morningside's name is because we're on the eastern front of Washington, D.C., or the morning side of Washington. We do have a lot of seniors still in the area, and they, those are some of our best treasures. You can sit down and talk with them for hours and find out stuff that you would not even believe happened around here. And we need to get this history down somewhere, or at least get it passed down so that somebody else can say, oh yeah, this happened or that happened. It's a very sweet little community, and you get to feel like, oh, this is a hometown, not just a hustle, bustle, do this, do this, do this. Like someplace you can chill out, relax, call home.
My name is Zerlene Hughes, and I've been an Eastland Gardens resident for just about five years. Eastland Gardens is located east of the river. We're divided by the 295 freeway. So on one side, we've got Deanwood. On the other side, we've got Eastland Gardens, Paradise, Mayfair, Kenilworth, and a few other communities. Particularly in the Eastland Gardens Flower Club, we like to think of Eastland Gardens as one of the old school neighborhoods of the 60s. Having worked with Lady Bird Johnson, manicuring the lawns, helping to upkeep the park, even though those days are gone where we used to wear the white gloves and the hats and have teas in our front yards, we're still trying to maintain a little bit of that history and that culture. There was a racetrack here, nothing but dirt roads. This was primarily where the African-Americans were supposed to live. So many of the pioneer African-Americans moved here, they settled here, they built their own homes. There were uh, African-American architects. Their projects were basically here in Eastland Gardens. Many of them were professors or students at Howard University. We're just really excited to know that we still have a rich history here. We're maintaining it. And many of us try to maintain that style of the 60s and even the 50s and, you know, manicuring our lawns and keeping things really beautiful and having a garden club. We heard from Karen Rooker in Morningside and Zerlene Hughes in Eastland Gardens. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And you can see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza, Jonathan Wilson, Sabrina Benashore, and Martin DeCaro, along with reporter Heather Taylor. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rafaela Benin. John McCone, Lauren Landau, and Rafaela Benin produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, have no fear. You can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll go theme-free with one of our Wild Cards shows. We'll do some diplomatic dining as we continue our Eating in the Embassy series, this time in Guinea. We'll meet an artist who may very well be painting you right now and find out why she's got a thing for capturing random strangers on canvas. And we'll hang out with an unstoppable icon of the D.C. jazz scene. And we do things all the time that ain't worth a nickel, but they feel good. <laughs> I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.